2: The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: On August 23, 1992, the Weaver family cabin on a remote hilltop in Idaho was filled with grief, pain, and fear. Over the previous two days, the Weaver's only son, 14-year-old Sammy, had been killed in an exchange of gunfire with a team of U.S. Marshals. Sammy's mother, Vicki, had been shot dead by an FBI sniper. Family friend Kevin Harris had been shot in the chest. He was drifting in and out of consciousness. And Randy Weaver, the fugitive the government was after, had taken a bullet in the arm. 10-month-old Aliciaba needed care. The two older daughters needed comfort. And their mother's body was wrapped in a blanket by the kitchen table. Meanwhile, just outside the Weaver property, a different kind of fervor was building at the barriers police set up to block access to the Weaver House.
3: Protesters have gathered at the roadblock about three miles from the Weaver's cabin, and whenever vehicles go by, the supporters let their outrage show.
4: You're a disgrace to the white race! Disgrace to
3: the race! Do
4: do? In addition now to worrying about Randy Weaver's wife, teenage children, and newborn baby in the cabin. Federal agents now must worry how these local residents will react if there is violence on the mountain.
1: The protesters who arrived at the police roadblock included friends and neighbors of the Weavers, including Tony and Jackie Brown, who we heard from in our last episode.
0: He wants to be left alone. He wants to be a separatist. They're creating the problem. Any blood gets shed, it's on their hands, not his.
1: Alongside Randy's friends were dozens of other protesters, and that crowd grew by the day. They were a ragtag group, and they weren't all there for the same reasons. They included skinheads and neo-Nazis, plus disillusioned Vietnam veterans, anarchists, and anti-tax ideologues. Adults and even children carried homemade signs with slogans like, Feds Shot First.
3: Shortly after 11 o'clock, we spot this Jeep Cherokee driving in the area. An FBI At helicopter. one point,
1: five neo-Nazis in a jeep were arrested trying to smuggle weapons into Randy. The ATF apprehended them on a back road leading to the cabin and found rifles, ammunition, and a banner reading White's Must Arm in the vehicle.
3: Plus a handgun, a dagger, and nunchucks are seized. We tonight, agents
1: TV reporter John Allison was one of the first to arrive on the scene. When he saw the rising anger of the protesters, he began to realize that the standoff at Ruby Ridge might be more than a local crime story.
2: The appearance of the of the broader community at the roadblock scene uh, was in some ways a canary in the coal mine for me. Uh, to understand that it was more than just a few kooks who were angry today, uh, the uh, the feelings or the idea that there are groups of people who are very angry with our government and with law enforcement is much more accepted.
1: Many of the protesters had never met the Weavers. For them, this was about the federal government stomping on white patriots who were just minding their own business. They were furious, and they didn't even know yet that Sammy and Vicki Weaver had been killed. They would soon find out. On August 23rd, two days into the standoff, an FBI team drove an armored personnel carrier to a shed on the Weavers' property. They intended to knock down the shed so other vehicles could get through, and so snipers would have a clearer view of the house. First, they took a look inside to make sure no family members were waiting in ambush. Instead, they found Sammy's body wrapped in a sheet. The marshals had seen the boy running right after shots were fired, so they claimed they didn't realize he had died. In a press conference, FBI agent in charge Gene Glenn broke the news.
3: He appears to have died of a gunshot
1: wound. His blood is on all your
3: hands! There was immediate shock,
4: anger, and tears over the news a child too young to drive was dead.
0: You fucking bastard! Are you proud of yourself? You're real fucking proud of yourselves, ain't you? you got stories to tell your kids, hey, I killed a 14-year-old boy. What
4: is the situation up there right now? Karen, I must tell you, this situation is extremely volatile right now. As a matter of fact, we chose to move because the situation down there was deteriorating rapidly.
3: He was us? one of you! you he was us? one of you! you he was us? one of you! He was one of
4: you!
1: The FBI was desperate to coax the family out without any more bloodshed, but it wasn't clear how to communicate with them. There was no phone line in the cabin. Randy would occasionally shout at negotiators from inside, but there was no way to engage him in conversation. Over the next few days, the Bureau tried multiple gambits. Negotiators brought Randy's sister to the scene from Iowa when he asked for her. She spoke to Randy through a loudspeaker, but she couldn't hear his responses. Some of the approaches they tried were poorly chosen to calm a paranoid anti-government extremist. At one point, they drove a tank up to the house and spoke to the family through a bullhorn.
3: The words are difficult to make out, but their point is clear. There's been enough killing. It's time for the killing to stop.
1: And then...
5: The FBI decides to send a robot with a phone.
1: Jess Walter was a reporter on the scene who later wrote a book about Ruby Ridge.
5: Um. There's no phone inside, obviously. There's no way to communicate with the family. So they send a robot with a phone, but this robot has a shotgun attached to it also. And even though it's pointing away, the family looks out and sees a robot with a shotgun and believes it's another attack.
1: Vicky's family back in Iowa had a better idea. They knew the Weavers had a small radio in the cabin, and they remembered that Randy had been a fan of the radio host, Paul Harvey. They enlisted Harvey to speak directly to Randy on air.
5: I am talking to you personally. A telephone has been left right outside your door on the porch. Reach out and pick it up. Nobody will shoot. Your family wants to know what to do with Samuel's body. And also, I will arrange for an attorney in Spokane to represent you and or whomever in the death of Deputy Deegan with a plea of self-defense,
1: Randy heard the broadcast, so he heard what Harvey said next.
3: Please talk only to Vicky about this.
1: Vicky's body had been lying on the kitchen floor for five days. From Slate Podcasts, this is Standoff. I'm your host, Ruth Graham. On today's episode, the nine harrowing days after the deaths of Sammy and Vicki Weaver. The FBI, like the Marshall Service, claimed they initially had no idea they'd killed anyone. When sniper Lon Horiuchi shot Vicki, she fell backward into the house. Horiuchi said he was aiming for Randy, and then he didn't realize he hit his target's wife. During negotiations, then, the FBI often tried to speak directly with Vicky. They knew she was the family's head decision-maker, after all. But their approaches seemed like purposeful psychological warfare to the family cowering inside the cabin with Vicki's corpse. Once, a federal agent's voice boomed through the loudspeaker. "'Good morning, Mrs. Weaver. Why don't you send the children out for some pancakes, Mrs. Weaver?'
5: Each time he says her name, it's just a dagger to these children.
1: Huddled together in the cabin, the family wrote down their version of what had happened, in hopes that their letter would survive them and inspire others when the feds finally killed them all. Samuel Hansen Weaver and Vicki Jean Weaver are martyrs for Yah Yahshua and the white race, they wrote. Even if the rest of us die, we win. For almost a week, nothing changed. Then, a wild card arrived on the scene.
3: Is there any agent here that represents Gene Glenn from the Federal Bureau of Investigation?
0: Vogue writes, a retired Army colonel renowned for his work on behalf of U.S. soldiers missing in action, performed what he calls a citizen's arrest on four top officials overseeing the siege.
1: Bo Grites was a right-wing huckster, a conspiracy theorist, and a celebrity to the protesters at the roadblock. He was a decorated Green Beret commando who had served in Vietnam and then took a series of trips to Southeast Asia to retrieve American prisoners of war supposedly abandoned by their government.
3: All along, his goal has been to try to bring out at least one American alive. And it would open the door to negotiation for release of all of them. All of his rescue attempts have been unsuccessful.
1: Greitz's rescue missions had reportedly inspired the movie Rambo, in which Sylvester Stallone single-handedly rescues abandoned POWs from bamboo cages in the jungle. Now, Greitz was running for president on the Populist Party ticket, which had previously nominated KKK leader David Duke. His slogan was God, Guns, and Greitz, and he called for civilian militias and the end of the New World Order. When the standoff at Ruby Ridge began, one of Randy's supporters contacted Greitz's campaign and told them about this guy facing off against the feds. The supporter said Randy had a poster of Greitz on the wall of his cabin. One thing you can say about Bo Greitz, he knew an opportunity when he smelled one.
2: Immediately, I considered him a headline hunter.
1: Reporter John Allison was skeptical of Greitz's motives.
2: You know, I have an image of him turning up, uh, being driven by somebody and exits his vehicle, sort of like, you know, General Patton getting off a Jeep or something. He knew that as soon as he stepped out of the vehicle and walked toward the crowd, that people were going to sort of envelop him. And he seemed to me to be enjoying that. I think he was serious in what he was trying to do. But he was interested in talking to any reporter that could find him at the scene.
1: Greitz wanted to talk with Randy Weaver.
3: He believes he could help find a peaceful settlement if federal agents allow him to go up to the cabin and talk. I'm willing to talk to him in terms that I think he will
5: understand. There's more for him to live for than there is for him to end up sacrificing his family for on the top of this hill.
1: By then, federal agents were getting desperate. Why not let Greitz try to talk some sense into Randy Weaver? No one else could. Glenn let Greitz through the roadblock ushered him up to the cabin, and gave him a megaphone. Greitz identified himself. And then... Randy responded. "'I've been shot,' Randy yelled from inside the cabin. "'Vicky has been shot through the head, and Kevin has been shot through the arm and into the chest. That's the moment the FBI found out that Vicky Weaver was dead.'" Greitz left the cabin, but he would return several times over the course of the next few days— Meanwhile, the FBI was reeling from the news that Vicki was dead.
2: It was clearly a disaster for the law enforcement there who were trying to do their job. And, and, and rather than capturing the, the target of all their efforts, uh, seemingly innocent bystanders were dead.
1: That night, Gene Glenn, the agent who had announced Sammy's death five days before, revealed the next grim discovery to reporters.
3: The three children
2: are in good health. Randy's in good health. Unfortunately,
3: Vicki is dead.
1: Oh. For the crowd at the roadblock, this was a turning point.
4: A lot of anger from these people who have amassed and been here really throughout this ordeal. Right now, they're holding a silent prayer vigil, but the, this is punctuated by shouts of, of anger, calls to war and violence. It's really quite a quite a tense moment. Everybody,
3: that so we are women of yaw. Never will you take another... We're going to war!
2: And I became quite fearful at that point that at any time, gunshots would, would ring out of the bushes at the law enforcement and we'd be caught in the crossfire.
4: And thinking back to this, several days ago when we learned that Samuel Weaver had been killed, there was probably an hour or two there where we were all probably a little worried and, and afraid about what might happen with some of these people. Yes, this will be a tense night on the roadblock.
1: Greitz traveled back and forth between the cabin and the roadblock, trying to keep things calm. He presented himself as a stalwart ally to the protesters. One day, John Allison was turning the dial on his radio scanner when he realized he was listening to a conversation between Bo Greitz and the Weaver family inside the cabin. The only way the scanner would have picked it up, Allison realized, was if Greitz was wearing a wire.
2: All of these protesters down below believed that Bo Greitz was their hero and he was there to save the day and figure out a way to make the feds maybe go away, I don't know. Now I know that Bo Greitz is essentially a double agent, and he's wearing a body wire, and if I'm listening to it over a scanner, obviously the FBI is as well.
1: On several trips to the cabin, Greitz brought Jack McLam, a retired cop who had become his right-hand man. Eight days into the standoff, he also brought along Jackie Brown, the Weaver's neighbor and friend. He was hoping the Weaver girls would trust her. Jackie had been at the roadblock from the start, sometimes spending the night at a nearby encampment. Now she was going behind police lines. They walked up past the meadow filled with Humvees and helicopters. So many agents were on the scene that the Red Cross had to bring them meals. It looked like
0: a military war zone. It reminded me of things you would see on the news about staging areas in Iran or Iraq or. Somewhere. The only difference was it was a green meadow being killed, surrounded by big pine trees.
1: The FBI offered Jackie a bulletproof vest before she approached the cabin. She joked that she'd take one if she could wear it backwards.
0: No one from the cabin had fired any shots. I I was in fear for my life, yes. I was in fear for my life from every agent there, not one member of the family that was in that cabin.
1: Agents had told Jackie and Bo to speak to Randy and the family from outside the cabin. But it was hard to have a real conversation that way. The family was still afraid that they'd get shot if they made themselves visible. So they lay or crouched below a small window, keeping their bodies out of sight.
0: So I just simply asked, can I come in? At that point, nobody had been in the cabin. And Randy said I could, as long as I came alone and ran around the back. So that's what I did.
1: She could see agents in the brush in camouflage and face paint, holding automatic weapons. As she approached the doorway, she thought about how a sniper had shot and killed her friend Vicki in that exact spot. If the Weavers opened the door, she wondered, would the FBI fire on them again?
0: I had images of being used for them to assassinate somebody. Um, I asked them to step away from the door, which they did. And when I entered the cabin, it was gloomy and ravaged with fear and pain and um, an inability to really understand why they wanted it this way. Speaking of the government, why would they do this? Um, Angry, yes, but worn down. I mean, um, scared to death. You know, they were saying the Weavers wouldn't give up. Well, it had been proven to the weavers at this point that if you so much as peeked out a window you'd probably get a bullet in the brain so why would they walk out
1: Inside the cabin it was dark the family had covered all the windows Kevin was lying on a recliner and he seemed near death There were blankets and sleeping bags spread on the floor the cabin was cluttered in a way that the house proud Vicky never would have tolerated Her body was wrapped in a blanket in the kitchen
0: it may sound so simple that it sounds stupid. <laughs> but I just wanted to hug the girls. I just wanted them to know they weren't alone, they were loved, and that somehow, if at all possible, I was going to make sure they were safe.
1: The Weavers talked, and Jackie listened. After a while, they gave her the six page letter that they had written days earlier in hopes of getting their story to the public. 16-year-old Sarah Weaver hid it in a sanitary napkin, afraid that the government would destroy it. Jackie smuggled the letter out.
0: I placed that in its proper place and walked off the mountain.
1: Jackie gave it to Tony, who gave it to a reporter. Bits of it were included in some news coverage, but not much seemed to come of it. The document the family had thought would be so explosive landed with something of a thud. From outside the cabin, Greitz asked if he could remove Vicky's body. Not yet, Randy said. It was Saturday, their Sabbath day. But it was clear that the family was softening. The next day, Kevin Harris walked outside to surrender.
3: This afternoon, we got a glimpse of Kevin Harris being taken from the cabin. The first big break in this 10-day-old
1: siege. In the afternoon, Jackie, Bo Greitz, and a local pastor returned to the Weaver cabin. Jackie's concern now was Vicky's body, which had been inside the house for a week in the summer heat. It was a health hazard for the children. I mean, this is the kitchen. They
0: have to crawl through the kitchen on their hands and knees or belly crawl to avoid windows for fear of being shot. To get any kind of food, which meant they had to climb and crawl through their mother's blood
1: and body tissue. So this had to stop. Randy helped the men put the body in a body bag, and then Jackie and Greitz carried it outside. Jackie went back out and told Richard Rogers, the head of the hostage rescue team, that she needed cleaning supplies. The FBI gave her two large buckets of water and some pristine white bath towels.
0: They even offered to—they even offered to help me carry it up there. Which, of course, I'm not stupid. I carried it up myself.
1: Back in the cabin, Jackie started to clean.
0: It was almost like an out-of-body experience. I was more watching myself do it. Um, It was very important not to play into the federal agenda, so you didn't show emotion. You didn't cry. You didn't burst out. You didn't get angry. Um, What was going on inside was a whole different ballgame. It's, you know, you just go on. What can you do but go on?
1: But Randy and the girls were still in the cabin, and they wouldn't leave. Greitz and Jack McLamb went back the next day. It was make-or-break time. If negotiations failed, they had a plan to forcibly subdue the family. McLam would hold the older girls, and Greitz would grab Randy and then say the code word, Alaska, into his small transmitter to summon the FBI. They hoped it wouldn't come to that. Greitz brought a note urging Randy to surrender, signed by some local skinheads Randy knew and respected. As he approached the cabin, Randy shouted at him to stop. The family had been praying all night, Randy said, and Yahweh had told them to stay in place. They would come down in nine days' time, on September 9th, the Feast of Trumpets. It was the same holiday that Vicky had set as Yahweh's deadline for finding property in Idaho. Greitz told him the feds were not going to wait that long. He slid the letter from the skinheads through a crack in the door. A little after noon, Randy and his surviving children walked out of the cabin together, with Randy holding the baby in his good arm.
2: A crisis in Idaho is over. An armed white supremacist late today surrendered, ending a violent standoff with police. Randy Weaver, his three children, and the man the government reluctantly accepted as its negotiator, walked out of a mountaintop cabin late this afternoon, hand in hand.
1: Greitz was triumphant.
3: Glory does go to God Almighty. It shows you the power of prayer. Secondly, it's mission accomplished because there's no more harm done.
1: The FBI put Randy on a helicopter to Sandpoint, Idaho. His daughters went with Vicky's parents to a nearby motel. Mike Johnson, the U.S. Marshal for the state, was on the helicopter with Randy. In Sandpoint, they would board a jet for Boise. Within hours, Randy would be standing in a federal courtroom. Johnson had been trying to bring Randy in for more than a year.
5: I said, uh, Randy, I'd like to ask you uh, some questions. And I used first name to try to get the dialogue going. He knew who I was. So he said, no, I don't want to say anything. And a couple seconds later, he said, well, what do you want to ask?
1: Johnson wanted to know one thing.
5: And I said, did you ever come off the mountain?
1: If Randy had come off the mountain after his brief arrest and release on bail in early 1991, that would mean Johnson had missed his chance to arrest him peacefully and avoid this whole thing.
5: And uh, he said, no, he had never came off the mountain from the day he went back there after court. Um, He had never come off the mountain. And that pretty much was what we thought. But I guess in the back of my mind, I wanted to know that, that. Uh, um, because of uh, how much effort was spent to try to to get them.
1: After 11 days, the standoff at Ruby Ridge was over. A few weeks later, about 50 activists, including Tony and Jackie Brown, gathered at a local restaurant to found a so-called patriot group called United Citizens for Justice. Other groups began to form in other states, strategizing about how to resist federal violence and defend white families. The Weavers were lionized on talk radio, in right-wing newsletters, and in the official magazine of the NRA. In New York, a young Gulf War veteran named Timothy McVeigh had been following the standoff closely. Afterward, he couldn't stop thinking about it. Next time on Standoff, an investigation, a trial, and the long afterlife of Ruby Ridge.
0: He looks at us, and he just immediately breaks into tears. And he says, they killed my son. They killed my wife. And there wasn't any reason
1: for it.
3: If you want to give your uh, federal agents that um, leeway to just say, when they kill American citizens, that things just, they just went wrong?
1: Standoff, What Happened at Ruby Ridge, is brought to you by Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Slate Plus members get a bonus episode of the show every week, with in-depth interviews going further into the characters and themes. This week, excerpts from my interview with Greg Sprungle, an Idaho sheriff who was on the scene of the standoff and helped investigate it afterward. To hear that episode and help support the show, sign up at slate.com standoff. Standoff is produced by me and Nina Ernest, with production help from Andrew Parsons. Slate's editorial director for audio is Gabriel Roth. Thanks this week to Chow Tu and Jess Walter.